And that seems to be what Randall Carlson is um, is saying in these articles, is that if this is what happened in the past, and if this is what our ancestors are warning us about, maybe we should you know, take that seriously and basically prepare for it. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. The last couple weeks, um, over the last couple weeks, I've been reading some articles by Randall Carlson. Uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of him, he's made a few appearances on Joe Rogan, um, some by himself, some with Graham Hancock. And he's got his own podcast, uh, was called, I think it's still called Cosmographia. So, well, over the past several months, I've listened to several of his podcasts. He's a really interesting guy looking at... Um, Catastrophism, the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. So I found a series of articles he did several years ago on the Holy Grail. So we're going to be talking a bit about that, maybe some other topics, maybe not. But he makes some very interesting conclusions about the Holy Grail mythos and everything surrounding it. Maybe as a bit of background, for for those who you know, aren't up to speed on the whole history of the Holy Grail. Um, at the end of the 1100s, around 1180, and then for the next 50 years, that's when pretty much all of the major Holy Grail stories um, were composed and came out. So it was this intense period for about 50 years of this creative output, um, all centered around this theme of the Holy Grail. So you have the, the first guy, Chrétien de Troyes, and uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, and um, Robert de Boron, and some anonymous works. And they all kind of center around a similar theme, but they're all really different too. They've all got different characters doing different things. The Holy Grail appears in different forms throughout these works, but they're all kind of, um, they all kind of center around one main uh, either storyline, like an overarching storyline, or just this idea of the Holy Grail and uh, as this mystery that is being sought, this, this item of great import that can bring healing to a blighted land. So, of course, I'm sh if anyone hasn't read any of the original Grail accounts, I'm sure you've seen it in pop culture, either as the, the, the cup at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or... Um, of course, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This idea of King Ar this the Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur, Merlin, and the the quest for the Holy Grail, going out in search of this, usually this chalice, this cup. Um, the main storyline is that the king Arthur or Bronn, um has been in a in a battle in a fight and has his thighs wounded by a lance or a spear, and this thrusts him into a sickness, and accompanying that sickness is a sickness of the land. So there, so there's this, this theme of the something bad happening, like the, the king gets wounded, mortally, well not mortally wounded, but seriously wounded in such a way that the land is then affected. So there are um, famine and death and destruction and pestilence, and it is the goal of the grail quester to find the grail to restore the land to its original state to essentially heal it regenerate it and, and uh, bring it back to normal that's kind of the, 
the Grail lore in a nutshell. Of course, there's all kinds of other storylines and and tales mixed in mixed into that. So we, with the characters like Percival and Galahad and Gawain, and of course Arthur and Merlin and all of their antics and and of course then all of the all of the works that have been composed in the centuries since then up to and including like uh, the Once and Future King, um, you know, famous series of novels um young adult but good for um adults too so randall carlson looks at this and wants to find out well what's what's behind this what is this what is the holy grail like what do these stories actually mean what is this mystery and he comes to some interesting conclusions because uh well and in line with other scholars but these are these are conclusions that could only really have been made in the last 50 year 50 to 100 years and once he lays out his case in this series of 12 articles then you know especially if you're familiar with some um some related works then it should really make sense he quotes for instance um patrick mccafferty i believe his name is who wrote a book with mike bailey a dendrochronologist a dendrochronologist called the celtic gods and mike bailey had written a couple books in addition to that, one from Exodus to Arthur, um, and a third one, New Light on the Black Death, all dealing with catastrophism and um, the the historical record of dramatic climatic changes and the hypothesis that many of these swift and sudden and often catastrophic turnarounds in um, population, um, agriculture, uh, mortality demographics were associated with cometary bombardments. Um, and this was basically a, a pretty new hypothesis because the, the mainstream has been that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Like the last big, the last big cometary bombardment that destroyed things was the extinction of the dinosaurs. That was 65 million years ago. And even that hypothesis took a while to be accepted. Um, you know, when I think it was Luis Alvarez first proposed it, you know, not a lot of people took him seriously. And now it's the, now it's common knowledge. Same kind of thing is happening with the Younger Dryas, which was around 12,500 years ago. The idea that the, this turnaround in the, the climate at the time, and also the extinction of many species, including the megafauna, were the result of this encounter with a comet that pretty much destroyed all of North America and um, and several regions. It was a global catastrophe, basically. And we talked about that in the show that we did on Before America, Graham Hancock's latest book. But when we look at the Grail legends, they... First of all, they refer back to King Arthur. So like I mentioned, they were written around, the first one was written around 1180 AD. And they refer back to this time of Camelot and King Arthur, which was placed and is generally placed around the year 540. So like 500 years, 600 years before these stories were written. So that was when King Arthur was supposed to have lived and died. And yet there are... There's question over whether Arthur is even a historical figure. He could just be a, a like a, a mythical figure, basically a legend that was created at some point. But the stories themselves seem to be greatly symbolical in nature. Um, Carlson calls calls the the language of these 
stories the language of cosmic symbolism. Um, one of his phrases is, that he uses in these articles is to call them a carefully composed code or cryptogram that has been deliberately disassembled for purposes of concealment, preservation, and transmission. He also refers to this cosmic, he also says that this cosmic symbolism has been embedded and preserved for posterity. So he does acknowledge that there are multiple levels of meaning in these stories. Um, one that has been analyzed already, and it's pretty common, is kind of the psychological, spiritual angle of looking at these stories, what it means for um, like personal, spiritual regeneration within oneself. But he argues that this is that an important and an important way of looking at this that hasn't been widely either accepted or acknowledged or even discovered is to look at the grail as, as, he's, as he calls it, a symbol for a lost technology of individual, social, and planetary regeneration. The grail quest, then, is an allegory for the search and eventual recovery of this technology for the restoration of both the debilitated king and the devastated kingdom, that has devolved into an infertile wasteland. And I mentioned Mike Bailey and his book From Exodus to Arthur, where um, I'm not sure if he was the first, but he might have been the first to, to present the idea that at, at around this time that King Arthur was supposed to have lived and died, 540 AD, there was, again, um, a catastrophe. The climate, especially in Ireland and Great Britain, that area, England, um, there was a downturn in that climate. And, if he, and then Carlson, too, quotes a bunch of sources all around this time period, one of which um, relates that there was a comet in the skies for 100 days, that it burned brighter than the sun, that the climate um, got colder, that the crops failed, that there was famine. And then a couple of years later, there was the Justinian plague that wiped out like one-third of the population in these areas. So there was a ton of just kind of horrible, catastrophic stuff going on in this time, just mass destruction um, and that was essentially the start of the Dark Ages at this period of time. So there was something that happened that wrecked civilization at the time and just destroyed things and, and did bring a, you know, a blight upon the land that there was, there, was, um, there was some event that was responsible for this unprecedented um, like reign of destruction and, and it lasted for, for years and years afterwards. So... Bailey and Carlson both hypothesized that the thing that wrecked civilization at that time was a cometary bombardment of some sort. And that in the Grail legends, written 600 years after that fact, that these ideas were basically embedded in them in a, in a kind of symbolic framework that was based, that was embedded and hidden at the same time. So there's like, there's, there's this mystery about the grail and behind that mystery, like the, the meaning of that mystery is the nature of cometary, like close encounters with cometary bombardments that have been um, more common than commonly believed in humanity's history. Not just pre-humans, like with the dinosaurs, but then in, in human history, their cometary bombardments have played a, a huge role in um, the the rise and fall of civilizations, um, the onset of kind of dramatic climate change, and um, and like like Bailey shows in New Light and the Black Death, even potentially um, mass pandemics. 
that uh, that wiped out huge portions of the populations at the time. So all of these seem to be found and encoded in the Holy Grail. Actually, when I was reading this, I was reminded about um, an idea in Gurdjieff's Beelzebub's Tales, also a bit in, in, in Search of the Miraculous. And in Search of the Miraculous, he talks about objective art and the kind of what the, the features that objective art has. And then in Beelzebub's Tales, he has a section on what he calls legomenisms. That's one of his new words that he came up with for um, this certain type of thing. So in Beelzebub's Tales, uh, Beelzebub tells his grandson, Hasin, that this word legomenism is given to one of the means existing there on planet Earth of transmitting from generation to generation information about certain events of long past ages throughout those three-brained beings who are thought worthy to be and who are called initiates. So there's this idea that in Gurdjieff of these stories or myths that contain kind of hidden and coded information about real events of past ages that actually happened that are then encoded for future generations to discover and to then learn from. And that seems to be exactly what the Grail legends describe. Not only the Grail legends, but myths of all sorts. Um, again, we saw that in our discussion of uh, Graham Hancock's latest book. And I think in those shows, maybe even the world mythology show on uh, Witzel's book, we talked about um, how it's not just Hancock, but um, there and and Bailey, also Victor Klub and Bill Napier have a couple of books, Cosmic Serpent and Cosmic Winter, where they look at Greek mythology and how the Greek myths seem to, and not just the Greek myths, but basically you know mythologies all over the place seem to encode these past uh, real events from past ages of these cometary bombardments that have devastated humanity and what happened afterwards and what kind of what maybe we need to to learn in order to either avoid or mitigate those things those same things from happening in the future and that seems to be what Randall Carlson is um is saying in these articles is that it's kind of it's past time that we re-examined these myths took a close look at them and then took them seriously enough to then realize that well if this is what happened in the past and if this is what our ancestors are warning us about, maybe we should, you know, take that seriously and basically prepare for it. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Corey? Well, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to touch a little bit about the the green language or the the language of cosmic symbolism that you were talking about, because uh, you know that it's it's the the way that he argues in this uh, series of articles is that um, this, this language of the Holy Grail is actually a code for something much deeper, and that it's, it's based on the same kind of principles that, um, you know, different ciphers and, you know, different, you know, thieves, criminals, and alchemists, you know, different people have used over the years in order to transmit information and to use, you know, pictorial language, you know, mm -hmm. very imaginal types of uh, figures that will describe something to one person that another person who lacked the context of the initiates could not possibly understand. And, I mean, thousands of articles have been written about the, the mystery of the Grail, and hundreds, probably thousands of books have been written about the mystery too. But 
um, you know, each from a very distinct and specific perspective. You know, you get you get the alchemical perspective about what the Holy Grail symbolizes for individual transformation. You know, through all these quests and all of these different things that. You know, there. You know, when people look to try and find what's the answer for you know spiritual transformation, but you don't get you know somebody with the kind of background like I, was he's like an engineer, um, scientist, something along. He has a very um, nuts and bolts background in science, and he also uh, is clearly a, a great detective because he's he's read all that literature, but he's also read the literature of what is you know the roles of of myth in life and. And in transmitting, you know, important information from one generation to another, and so he's able when he looks at these pictures and he's reading the 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 Grail legends, he's picking up on things in etymology and in history that are you know that any uh, any of us would be oblivious to, and you know just you know one example is the the, uh, the word Sangreal, which I believe the Holy Grail uh, comes from. Now in the the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The main thesis of that book was that there was uh, the Sangreal had been split in the wrong in the wrong mm-hmm. uh, syllable. So you could say, you know, it's either Sang Sangreal, Holy Grail, or Holy Blood, Sangreal. Mm-hmm. And you know, he points out that this is almost deliberate on the part of the you know the, this symbolism is that you're supposed to pick up on numerous different aspects, numerous different dimensions of even one little word, because they're all clues to the the much bigger picture. And it's not just about, you know, the descendants of Jesus Christ, and it's not just about, you know, spiritual uh, uplift, but, you know, the uh, he devotes the entire article to describing blood in the skies and blood raining from the skies, even in modern times that scientists have analyzed blood that has come down from the sky it's, that's what it looks like is blood and it usually follows some sort of sonic booms some sort of cometary fragments exploding in the atmosphere and then when scientists actually were able to analyze it they they noticed that it was you know uh, just billions of microorganisms mm-hmm. that you know very well could be some sort of a holy blood that yeah. was that has been transmitted throughout the ages in order you know to to tell people that you know these are kinds of not only are these signs to look for but also the most intriguing thing i think about his article is that there is some knowledge in that about how to use there's been yeah. some transmission of of information about how all of these different um, biological and metallic elements that come raining down throughout uh, history, periodically destroying the world, have also been used by life itself and by man to rebuild civilization. Mm-hmm. And that there is inherent in in that the Holy Grail quest, this um, you know you you get this anthropological dimension of the the struggle it takes to rebuild civilization and to restore the king um, after uh, the world has been turned into just the, a bitter, horrible wasteland by all of these things. But that at the same time, there's something holy and magical, you know, mm-hmm. alchemical about this process itself that we still don't understand what role it has really played in not only the, the spreading of life throughout the cosmos, but also the evolution of life on our planet. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there are a few, a few different things to say about that. One is that Carlson, too, points out the, 
the almost contradictory nature uh, natures of the Grail in these myths. On the one hand, there is a an element of destruction, but there's also an element of rebirth, and it seems that the source. The source of both of them is the same. So you have these cometary bombardments that just bring absolute destruction, can wipe out entire civilizations. And then on the other hand, comets have been seemingly, Carlson argues, responsible for not only the introduction of life into the, like, uh, you know, our planet and perhaps elsewhere, well, most likely elsewhere in the cosmos, but in, um, so injecting, like you said, these prebiotic materials, amino acids, amino acids have, well, many different types of prebiotic materials and even organic materials have been shown to exist in cometary debris and to survive not only, you know, the dead cold of space, but the the very hot re-entry into, or entry into the Earth's atmosphere. And that when that happens, he has another article in this series that describes the life cycle of a comet. Um, which is interesting. Maybe we'll get into some of those in a bit. But what happens at the end of it is that so finally you've got this this burning bright comet, often you know brighter than the sun, that smashes down into Earth and creates this crater. And crater is actually the root word. One will tr- it's the root word of Grail essentially. Um, Grail tracks back through several languages to the original uh, Greek word for basically a like a platter, um, a, a, a crater. Uh, a crater, and now we've used that word as a description for the astrobleem, the the star blemish that forms after uh, an asteroid or a meteor um, strikes the Earth, and you get that bowl-shaped thing. So that bowl shape is um, it's an interesting coincidence that the word we have actually lines up with the Grail, one of which one of whose symbols was uh, a platter um, or a chalice, you know, the same kind of shape, and that when that happens. All of these materials are then injected not only into the atmosphere, but also the lithosphere, the biosphere. Uh, During the Tunguska event of 1908, when a comet fragment exploded over Russia, in the years afterwards, they discovered that some of the life forms, like plant life and insect life, was... Um, affected in such a way that now they were growing at like hundreds time hundreds times faster than they than they ordinarily would have. Something happened to to their actual genetics or the expression of their genetics. And Carlson argues this was probably history throughout, probably what happened throughout history at the various times when we when we see explosions of speciation of new uh, variations in species and new species. That there is an injection of material from the heavens. You know, a meeting of heaven and earth through the cometary bombardment that that literally brings the heavens down to earth and then injects all this material into every aspect of the of the earth. So um, he quotes another study that that sh- that showed that the the boundaries of the continents and the way they originally broke up from one single com from one single continent were these. Um, you know, massive cometary bombardments that that broke the the lithosphere, you know, right down there to create these fractures that then um, allowed for the separation of the continents, and that by going by causing kind of this rocky destruction in such a way, it accessed the um, essentially the the hydrosphere, the the sources of water and the circulation of water on the planet, so that whatever was injected in th- via that comet could then spread throughout the the entire earth basically and there was like it was like a a network 
to distribute the material injected from a cometary to debris. And the to get back to the thing about blood, the reason he ties this in is that in several of the of the Grail stories, there is this association between the Grail and blood, not only in the the Sang Real, the the Holy Blood. But also in, for instance, there's one image in the procession, the procession of the Grail. I can't remember which story it was in, where Percival is shown a procession of objects, um, one of which is a white lance dripping blood at the end, and then it's followed at the end of the procession by a by the Grail itself, which is too bright to look at. It's brighter than the sun, and that whole scene. Carlson shows is entirely cosmic in nature. The castle in which it happens is a representation of the the heavens, the 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 sky, the night sky that we see. The Grail enters and goes through a series of progressions as different objects: a can- candelabra, a white lance. Um, there, the the lance or the spear has been one of the symbols associated with comets because that's what it can appear as in the sky, as, as well as a sword. Um, comets can tape all, take all kinds of different shapes in the sky and have been been associated with all kinds of symbols and images, like um, a beautiful woman with flowing hair. That flowing hair is the um, the what's it called the 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 tail of the comet. Um, a, spe- a sphere or a sword because they can appear as these kind of straight um, like weapon-looking objects in the sky, serpents or dragons. Um, the, there's just kind of like an endless series of symbols associated with this and in the grail one of them is like i said this lance dripping uh dripping blood and not only that in tales uh well in recollections of encounters with comets historically there have been these um these associations with rains of blood and patrick mccafferty who i mentioned earlier he's done a study kind of collecting all these reports and looking at them. And like you said, even into modern times, the same phenomenon happens. It happened in Kerala, Indian, uh, Kerala or Kamala, India in 2001, and then in 2011, I believe, in Pakistan. And so these are what, they were, what some scientists were able to actually study because they, the, they got the blood, you know, the, the cosmic blood, and analyzed it, and that's when they found all these microorganisms and that it was actually a biotic material. So these rains of blood have been associated with comets throughout history, throughout recorded history, and even up to the present time, like you said, with the association with sonic booms, which are often um, airburst phenomena where the, the cometary fragment explodes in the air and then causes a sonic boom, and with um, reports of um, meteor showers and fireballs. So even today, those phenomena are associated. So there's this weird biotic material that somehow rains down from space that that is associated with blood in not only legends but historical accounts of these close encounters or very close encounters and carlson again like you said takes wonders about this about the history for all of evolution all of all of human history that there is some some aspect to all of this that we don't really have a grasp on yet and that but that it seems if it's true that these initiates, these people who encoded all this information in not only these legends and myths, but in buildings like um, like the cathedrals and the and the ancient um, structures like Stonehenge and all the you know all the things like that that Graham Hancock talks about, 
Um, I just want to mention around this time, from the late 1100s to the early 1200s, this was also when the this was also the period at the beginning of the of the building of the great cathedrals at this time. So there was kind of a pre-Gothic um, tradition of building, but it was around this time, the same time where we had this explosion of buildings of these great cathedrals like Notre Dame and Chartres, I believe, and like dozens of others. So that was when Gothic architecture got started. And um, in other materials, Carlson looks at that too, and the geometry, because he's big into like geometry of ancient sites and things like that too. That's one of the things that, that, that he likes to look at. Not, and then also this is when there was kind of a, um, if not a resurgence, then a, a, like a blossoming of Sufism in, um, in Spain and in, and in the Middle East where Ibn Arabi was around, was living at the same, uh, just around the same time. He was one of the biggest, um, Sufi writers and theorists and, and practitioners of the time. His works were st are still like renowned in, in Sufism. Um, it was also like the, well, I think Carlson has a list. Yeah, it was the, the at, around the same time of, around the same time, it was the rise of power of the Templar Knights, the rise and fall of Catharism in, in Southern France. Um, there was the Kabbalistic and mystical schools in Spain. Um, all kinds of stuff. Of course, the, um, hermetic tradition, this was an important time for, for that kind of stuff too. So there was a lot going on in this period of time. And if you ever look into alchemy, like you get the impression, well, any of these kind of like secret tradition schools or whatever, you get the impression that these people know something, um, that they're, or, or at least they think they know something. They seem to, they, they seem to have devoted a lot of attention to these details and these arcane strange practices and, and theories and um, not knowing what it is on the outside, you know, there's a barrier caused by that um, language of the birds that you were talking about, Corey, that symbolic language that it, it makes it incomprehensible to someone who isn't an insider, essentially. But, uh, well, even Isaac Newton was probably devoted more time to alchemy than he did to his more um, accepted and, uh, you know, scientific results that he's now known for. He was actually probably more interested in, in alchemy than what we'd now call, you know, real science. So there's just a whole bunch of uh, weird stuff going on there. And it makes you wonder if there is something more that, that these folks understood and were trying to get across and, you know, how they knew it. Um, yeah, an interesting, an interesting thing for future study. Well, at the top of the show, Harrison, you, you mentioned the vast number of Arthurian legends and myths and stories that uh, became popularized as a result of, of all of this information. And it's very hard to separate, I think, the, the power of those stories and their longevity with what they were actually signifying or what they were representing for uh, popular culture, if you will. And it's, it's fascinating to think that deep in the subconscious of, of writers and, and people who are looking at this myth and recreating it for popular consumption, there is this kind of perhaps unconscious knowing that these stories did have a power and were trying to communicate something. 
And if you take stories like The Once and Future King by T.H. White, for instance, which I think is probably one of the most beloved uh, versions of the Grail myth and, and the Arthurian legend, uh, you, you find whether because he's extrapolating certain truths that he understood for himself or picked up on, on certain pieces of truth that he had assimilated while reading the material itself, uh, it's hard to say, but there are some very interesting things uh, that he has in that book. And, you know, for one is Knights of the Round Table, the, this idea of a, a circle of individuals who were committed to seeing and acting on the same truths uh, in, the, in the quest, in the Grail quest. And there's almost a kind of esoteric significance to this inner circle of people who took it upon themselves to swear fealty to Arthur and, and everything that they were looking to, uh, to accomplish together. Uh, T.H. White also describes Arthur's education at the hands of Merlin. Merlin shows Arthur uh, Arthur's connection to everything, his connection to nature. He helps Arthur assume the consciousness of a fish or a blade of grass or, a, or an animal in order that Arthur be better connected to nature and, and understand his connection to it. There's also a great deal of information or parts of the story that suggest that Arthur wasn't this uh, arrogant um, megalomaniac of a king. On the contrary, it was his humility uh, that informed his rule. He, there's a scene where he's darning his own socks, which is an image you don't quite often see in, in literature. A, a king having the, uh, the, the, the very basic understanding that he could do things for himself he wasn't uh he, he wasn't lording it over individuals because he had the power to uh which in fact was i think white is saying what made him a real king he he had a connection to everything and he wasn't putting himself above anything uh so so lots of interesting connections there i think and um probably speaks to the fact that it was Arthur's true leadership uh, in, in the way that White describes and probably others that would help inform his ability to see the secrets of, of the Grail or to, or to find it, to, to make him worthy of seeing his connection to what what the real state of affairs is in the world and in history. Just, you're, you're talking about the, the fictional elements that kind of just come out of this, this story. And if it was created by initiates, you know, back in 1080 AD or, you know, thereabouts, I, uh, I kind of wanted to get an idea of what kind of minds, you know, what, what the, the mindset that these individuals this era might have had about comets you know is there was there public discussion um was it you know academic you know controversial you know what was this what was the, the kind of mindset and so it just did a little poking around and 
and discovered that uh, around that time, uh, John of Damascus, uh, Albertus Magnus, the the Catholic saint slash alchemical end of you know superhero in 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 history, um, and and others were were debating the the meaning of comets because it was unclear, you know, why they existed or where they came from and what their significance was in the realm of, you know, in God's kingdom. You know, were they just degenerate bodies coming down to earth or did God purposely create these and then send them down in order to, you know, create a new world, basically? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very intriguing that these kinds of opinions were being discussed by, you know, like John of Damascus held the the, the latter opinion, whereas others like Albertus Magnus held the former, um, that there was the a place for comets in, um, in Christianity, in theology, that there was a, a drive to understand their place in theology and that they were elevated um, in in a way that was kind of befitting their significance to mankind, whereas you know today, if you were to even mention you know the kinds of things that the Holy Grail allegedly symbolizes, then you know talk about a lockdown, mm-hmm. you know talk about you know a shutdown and a, and a panic. You know, uh, I think there's a really good reason why these things had to be couched if if they you know if this is what it symbolizes, it couched in a language that would necessitate only those who had the perspicacity and the character, like you were talking about, Ilan, to um, to pull all of these pieces together and to, to understand the significance of them. Well, I think there... I agree with that. I think there's another aspect, too, that something of great importance from a remote period of time can only really be passed on in story form. Because just think about the number of people who have read the Odyssey and then compare that to the number of people who have read, um, I don't know, like, you know, Aristotle's um, Nicomachean Ethics, right? It's right. like, yeah. or, or some obscure, more scientific treatise from, you know, how many people mm-hmm. have actually read Newton in the original, right? Mm-hmm. Pro- probably very like a tiny tiny percentage of the population has actually read Newt, Isaac Newton's works. I mean, they know some of his work, some of his scientific work that's come down because it's actually practiced by scientists today and it's, you know, taught in um, you know, grade school or high school. But how many people have actually read that and know what he actually wrote? You know, very few. But how many people have read or heard of the Grail legend? It's like it's almost universal to the point where it filters down into into pop culture. And, uh, you know, Monty Python makes a movie about it, a, a funny movie about it. So practically everyone knows or has heard of the Holy Grail. And probably no one can name a single book written by Isaac Newton. Um, so you, all, you also have to fi- factor in the idea of, um, of these actual destructions that happened and what happened afterwards. Because civilization was essentially destroyed all of a sudden, you, you totally lack the, the social structure that you had beforehand. You, you lack all the institutions that you had beforehand. Pretty, like, if you look at the way society is structured, there's a very, um, it's very compartmentalized and specialized. And when you wipe out 60% of the population, you lose all of that expertise and you have to essentially re- rebuild from scratch. Um, that's probably happened numerous times in, in human history. So how do, you, how do you pass on 
the knowledge you have when you don't have the institutions and you've lost some of like the you know your brightest lights um, in the in the the spheres of education or you know intelligence or knowledge. Well, you tell a story about it. You embed it in a story. And so something of great importance can be passed on through generations and generations, um, relatively intact, to the point where we can still read we can still read those same stories that were written even thousands of years ago, but oftentimes we just lack the key, you know, the key to understanding. Um, it's been preserved, hopefully, or perhaps with uh, probably with the intention of being discovered and unopened. But for various reasons, it it either had well it, for for various reasons it had to be encoded, either just to ins- inject it into a popular form that be- could be carried on for generations, or because there was something dangerous about that information at the time that couldn't be shared widely, or it was perceived that it couldn't be shared widely. And I know this was true of um, kind of commentary stuff at various times in history. Um, I don't know if we if we want to get into that. Well, basically, it was dangerous. It was dangerous knowledge in certain times and in certain contexts um, because um, it could, for one, there was a political aspect that it could expose the the weakness and the inability of current leadership to have any kind of control over the global situa- situation. Because here's something for which our great leaders can't do anything to save us. So when you have this these sources of just chaos that can destroy everything there is a a wish on certain people's behalf to to pretend that they have the power to to um preserve society and to kind of keep the peace whereas commentary with bombardments kind of um disabuse people of that notion and people then often turn on leaders so in that sense at certain times it's been dangerous knowledge to have mm-hmm. but um yeah that's still a mystery i'm still not quite i'm still not quite um sure what i think about all of that and how it all plays out like specifically with the grail legends like what really was the intention why was this encoded at this particular time mm-hmm. and in, in the way that it was because this was 600 years after this um you know this destruction of 540 ad and um Oh, so so yeah. What I'm gonna what I'm going to look at next is what was the next the next big one? Because um, when was the Black Death? Was that in the twelve or thirteen hundreds? I can't remember. Um, it, it stretched on for a yeah. few centuries, right? Yeah, but when, but when it did it start? Started, started maybe around the yeah. Well, whenever it started, you know, it, it could be that um, that this was kind of in preparation for for that. Maybe not specifically. You know, they might not have had. Um, the ability to mm-hmm. predict to the, that in exactly this amount of years we're going to experience another one of these things in some form or another, but that okay, well, this happened in the past; it's going to happen again. We're going to at least get these ideas into the the mass consciousness, um, and for various reasons too, not just about comments, because like we said at the beginning of the show, there are multiple levels of meaning, and like Alan was saying about the. Uh, about once in future king there are other aspects to these kinds of stories that that go along that that um that have other purposes than just giving information about commentary bombardments mm-hmm. yeah i want to get into that a little bit but first on the subject of the commentary bombardment there's a i think carlson put something pretty well in one of the articles when he said that the after giving a lot of the information on this commentary interpretation he writes that 
that these the some of these stories in the in the Grail myths. He says, or one of these stories, it is describing an entirely natural event or phenomenon, but one that manifests on such a scale of power that it indelibly imprints itself on the religious consciousness of those who experience it directly. So this is something that it's easy to forget or not bring to mind is what an an encounter like this must have been like from what we know of the recorded sources and then what the science tells us too, something that we haven't experienced to any great degree in our lifetimes or the life or even the, the last hundred years. Um, so we have no real frame of reference for it, but mm-hmm. you can get an idea, for instance, from the Chelyabinsk um, explosion from several years ago of, and this was just, this was something totally minor this kind of tiny comet fragment that exploded in the skies over Russia, and that's the that's the one you've probably seen the dash cam footage of it, where it just you know it lit up the sky like brighter than the sun. But if you can imagine this giant comet in the in the sky that is shining brighter than the sun, that all kinds of weird things are going up on there. So first of all, you have this kind of magical, like fantastical display going on in the skies that's that's out of nowhere that you've never experienced before because the heavens are supposed to be lawful. They're supposed to, everything's supposed to happen like clockwork, right? And then you have the introduction of this this new chaos, this new element that kind of comes out of nowhere. What is this this comet? It's not just a, com- a little tiny little comet like we like we know from like Halley's Comet or like we see the pictures of. <clears throat> this is something taking not a, a shooting star. It's not a shooting star. This is a, a new heavenly body that is prominent like in a the moon. sky. Like a moon or, or a new sun. Mm-hmm. And it is interacting with other fragments from, from the, the comet. Because one of the, the phases of the comet and one of the phases of the comet life cycle is this um, disintegration of this comet. Because as they enter, like happened with... Um, um, Shoemaker Levy in 1994, mm. they break up into fragments. So now you have multiple comets, comets, and they can interact with certain ways in the skies. They can appear to fight each other or engage in some kind of battle. One swallows the other, one destroys the other. So you have these accounts of battles in the heavens, and and then imagine the actual destruction caused when one of them enters the atmosphere as it's passing through the atmosphere and if it crashes into the ocean it can be burning it up to like um what did carlson say well at some ridiculously high temperature like hotter than the surface of the sun mm-hmm. so it melts everything in its path um if it's if it if it impacts land it can melt stone and create this kind of this just liquid mass of whatever it hit ha- happens to hit or it can go in the ocean dissolve a whole bunch of water and if it's strong enough, it can actually go through the entire ocean and create a crater at the bottom of the ocean and create giant tsunamis. And so anyone experiencing this kind of event, it would be um, like the not only the experience of a lifetime, but of several generations, even like hundreds of years that will, in, like Carlson says, indelibly imprint it, imprint itself on the religious consciousness of the per- of the person experiencing it. So it it uh, it it creates such an effect such a, on such a a level it's not just a it's not just like you know you're going down the street and you see s- some weird looking person that you know is kind of odd that you then remember and tell your friends about this is a life changing event not only for you but for all of humanity or everyone who in the area to experience it so when you get an idea of the scope of 
the kind of experiences that this is, you can then understand some of the, um, not only the imagery, but the, the feeling surrounding these stories. So when you think about the Holy Grail and you think about, or you kind of just experience the emotions that like the, the, the mystery around it and the, the kind of otherworldliness of it, these are all somehow they manage to be captured in these stories, but they're directly applicable to the actual experience itself because there's something like these guys were having this discussion about it in like, you know, around 1200 and trying to figure out what was going on. But it was, it was something mysterious, you know, marvelous, enigmatic and yeah, marvelous. And to then have that encoded to have that feeling encoded in the, Mm -hmm. in the, in these stories is uh, I think just as important as like the, the scientific, whatever scientific information might be encoded in there is that there is something, like I said, otherworldly about, about this. And this then ties into the, you know, one of the other interpretations, which is the more psychological or spiritual angle. Um, Carlson points out that there are many correlations between the Holy Grail symbolism and that just that whole mythos and alchemy um, both deal with the the philosopher's stone for instance and they're often equated the holy grail is the philosopher's stone of the alchemist and the achievement of the philosopher's stone is the then the access to this regenerative um, substance or something that manages to restore the the original like healthy state to the the fallen um, and sick individual, basically like a spiritual regeneration or rebirth that occurs within the body of the alchemist. At least that's an interpretation of alchemy. It's not just limited to um, playing around with your alchemical instruments and creating some gold, that there is an inner gold, an inner spiritual thing going on. And it seems it's really interesting to me that the the that the myth manages to play itself out on these multiple levels. So in the strictly cometary interpretation, you have this heavenly body that is introduced into the earthly body that brings um, new materials and heavenly materials and injects those heavenly materials into the earthly body to regenerate and create new life. And when you look at any number of spiritual traditions or esoteric spiritual traditions or just esoteric traditions, you have a similar structure where there is some heavenly substance, whether it's the Holy Spirit or the Baraka or, um, or whatever that gets that through some kind of spiritual practice gets introduced into the body, um, and form, and then acts as a kind of, as a catalyst for some kind of new process in the body, new growth that regenerates and brings life to the, to what, to what was relatively in comparison dead that that what happens on the on the actual earthly scale and in an actual like Carlson calls it a, an entirely natural event or phenomenon has this uh, this correlation with this spiritual practice that happens on an inner level mm-hmm. um, or at least is um, purported to happen on a on a spiritual level wait I just wanted to add that you know that Reminds me of the show that we did on the crucifixion and the, the, the entire takeaway was that you can have no resurrection without the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember when I was growing up, I had I would have dreams of of comets and that was always a very interesting 
experience because in the dream it was always like I was watching it, like it was actually it was actually happening mm-hmm. and and I still remember the the emotions upon waking of of awe and terror because the uh, the entire cosmos has is under assault you know that's what it you know it, it, that's when you're talking about the um, the descriptions of comets in the sky it's like the the gods themselves are here to wreak absolute chaos and the gods have returned and they seem like they're pissed you know and there's um, there's an element to it that is that uh, just shakes you to your bones and it's mm-hmm. something you know like a like a crucifixion mm-hmm. you know like the like the crucifixion where you're you're going through um the the dis- disintegration of your old personality or something you know you it's it's a death that has to occur and so i can see that you know why it would re- it would translate so well on on a number of different levels is because even for the earth you know the earth perhaps needs a, a crucifixion now and then, just as individuals, we need crucifixions in order to, um, in, t- in order to to live as you know, and to evolve. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a while since I've read the stats, but it seems that uh, the uh, comet or meteor in Chablinsk in Russia that that we had read news about a few years ago is just part and parcel of what may be part of a cycle of increased activity. Uh, that we're experiencing here on Earth right now. And we hear reports of sonic booms and uh, sightings of fireballs of uh, various description and colors and doing all sorts of strange electromagnetically charged activity. And recently there is a... Well, we've been talking about this on, on multiple levels. So another level that would seem to be playing out at this time or not uh, is this geopolitical level because so right now we have uh, major economic and military and and informational wars that are being uh, perpetuated by various interests in the US in China and in Russia and in the midst of this, uh, it, it's come out recently that with all of this rhetoric and high-flying accusations and, and efforts to seemingly undercut one another or to, to work with one another and, and to make sincere attempts at working together, as can be demonstrated on the part of, of Russia and, and in part China with the U.S., Trump came out recently with an act that would basically mean uh, the cooperation of the U.S., China, and Russia in identifying and eliminating a threat from asteroids, in addition to mining on the moon, among other things. So if you've ever read anything about the Space Wars program by Ronald Reagan and and the various types of... um, high-tech weaponry that's been inserted into our orbit in order to get the advantage over other countries. Uh, this, this would seem to be a, a complete opposite intent or, um, or policy, which, is, uh, which has been largely unnoticed by the media. So I, I read that recently, and I was wondering, what, what does 
what is it that Trump knows that he would be so willing to to buck the Washington consensus of of being anti-China, anti-Russia, or not working with them uh, on one level, and actually sign this kind of major level of cooperation on a cosmic scale uh, that no one else was covering. And it was, uh, I think his name is Matthew Arett, a journalist uh, who writes from Canada, whose observations about the U.S.'s... um, deep state intentions and, and all the types of things that, uh, that are pushing the Trump administration in a certain negative direction that he's always tried to put the stops on. But in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of, of all of these other uh, many things that are going on, he, he acknowledges celestial intentions and, and signs this, this act of cooperation with uh, the almost officially avowed enemies of, of the U S according to Washington dictates. So I thought that was very interesting. And I wonder what that says about him and what that says about Putin and Z that they are acknowledging this, uh, this threat from above and, and, would be willing and to think about and and work on a cooperative venture of offsetting all of these things from occurring. Well, to wrap up today, I'll just read something from Carlson's conclusion that kind of recaps pretty much what he wrote about in the entire series. So he begins, the word employed to describe the geological formation of a great excavation in the Earth's crust caused by hypervelocity impact was the original Greek term from whence derives the term grail, as in holy grail, referring to a special cup, plate, or saucer that confers properties of rejuvenation and longevity upon those who imbibe its contents, as well as restoring life to a barren wasteland. We have learned that as a byproduct of the great impact of events, impact events, Exotic materials such as platinum group metals and biological and genetic precursors are introduced into the Earth's crust and into the biosphere. We have learned that there were ancient traditions extracting and employing the cosmic materials in various ways, possibly to accelerate spiritual processes. We have learned that as a result of these powerful impacts, the crust of the Earth is fractured and broken. This extensive network of fracture weaknesses permeating the lithosphere allows for the circulation of subterranean waters and the dispersion of the celestial products of impact throughout the the lithosphere, the hydrosphere, and ultimately the biosphere. It is through this process, I am suggesting, that evolution is catalyzed. I am also suggesting that a sophisticated scientific knowledge of these processes has existed since ancient times and has been preserved to one extent or another in the traditions of the Holy Grail and alchemy. So we'll include a link to Carlson's uh, articles in the show description, so check it out if you're interested. And uh, we'll probably also include a link to his YouTube channel where you can see the stuff he's been working on lately and uh, podcasts relating to the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. So enjoy, and we'll see you later.